This is a story that's about a lot more than just washing feet. It's interesting to think about all the details of how the feet were washed and things, but as we get into the story, we're going to realize that there's a lot more going on. So I want us to take a look at it. So first, what's the setting of the story? So we're in John chapter 13, so that tells us there have been 12 chapters before it. And in those 12 chapters, we've been introduced to who Jesus is. As the one who is the light of the world, the one who is the creator, the one through whom all things were made. We've seen him do miracles, turn water into wine, heal people, even raise the dead. We've heard him proclaim who he is with a series of I am statements that he is the light of the world, he is the resurrection and the life, he is the gate, he is the good shepherd. All these things, and it's leading up to this point. And so the Gospel of John is this long story. And when John wrote it, there weren't chapters and verses, but these first 12 chapters build up to this. And we're going through all these events of Jesus' life, and we come to what we know as chapter 13, and it slows way down. We've been going from place to place and all these things. And in fact, the next five chapters, chapters 13 through 17, all take place in the span of just a few short hours. This time where Jesus is gathered for a meal with his followers, and some call it the, the farewell discourse, this where Jesus is giving a, a farewell speech. But I think I like what uh, the scholar Michael Gorman calls it. He calls it the mission discourse. So the mission speech where he's empowering his disciples and talking about what they're going to be doing. Michael Gorman, I've appreciated his commentary. In fact, the title for the series, Abide and Go, is from one of his books where he looks at this picture of who Jesus is and what Jesus is calling us to do. So here we are, Jesus is getting ready and he's knowing that he's about to leave his followers and he's giving them you know, how they're going to get along after he's gone and what they're going to be doing. So it's the festival of Passover and they're preparing to celebrate the Passover, this time in history when God liberated his people from slavery in Egypt by this series of miracles and led them out and brought them to a new land. But there's something more that's going on and the language that Jesus uses for it, or John talks about it, he says, he knew that the hour had come. The hour. And so you get this sense of there's a time, there's an impending doom, there's something that's about to happen. It's as if the whole story is leading into something. Like you're reading a book or you're watching a movie and you know that there's going to be the big scene at the end. If you've ever watched a superhero movie, you know that at some point there's going to be a giant battle at the end between the hero and the villain. And in a sense, so when John says the hour had come, he's saying now's the time. Now is when this thing is about to happen. There's this impending fate. But you notice it says that Jesus knew. Jesus isn't surprised. Jesus is coming to his followers and telling them what's about to happen. He's preparing them for something because he knows what's about to happen. The other language in that first verse that kind of sets up everything, it says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And that sense of to the end has kind of two perspectives. One, it's to the conclusion or to the finished, but it's also to the uttermost. It's kind of like the little, the book we used to read with our kids when we were growing up, you know where it had the line that says, I love you to the moon. And the dad responds, I love you to the moon and back. And so when it says Jesus loved him to the end, it's kind of saying farther than you can possibly imagine. He loved them to the uttermost. And so when we read that, 
in this opening picture of Jesus starting to talk with his disciples, that frames the whole discussion. Is this is about a reflection of Jesus' love for them. It goes on and says, the meal's in progress. And the devil had prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. And so we realize that was that language of verse 1. The hour had come. This is the time of danger. Satan is at work. Judas is about to betray him. Things are about to turn dark. It's the hour of danger. It's the hour of battle. But it continues on in verse 3 where it says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his feet, power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So Jesus knew the hour had come. He knows all things are under his power. He knows that he's come from God and he's returning to God. So in other words, Jesus knows a whole bunch, doesn't he? Knows a lot of what's going on. And so that sets what's going on. He knows his origin. He knows his destiny. And so my question for you might be, if you knew you had all the power in the world, if you knew the world was under your feet and you had all authority, that you could do what you wanted to do, what would you do? Well, what does Jesus do? John goes on and tells us. Says he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. And then he takes a basin and begins to wash his followers' feet. So Jesus enters into this practice that would have been common back in those days. So in those days, people wore sandals or oftentimes bare feet. They walked through the roads of the Middle East, which would have been dusty. Sanitation was less than ideal. So when you entered into a house, your feet were extremely dirty. Now there's various understandings of the foot washing practice and various even ways that it was done between the Greco-Roman world and the Jewish world. But oftentimes, particularly in the Jewish world, the guest would simply be offered a basin of water. And it was the guest's responsibility to wash the feet. Occasionally it might be a child, might be a servant or a slave, but frequently it was just the guest's responsibility. And so here's this shocking thing where Jesus, the one who is the rabbi, the one who is the leader, decides to wash the feet of his followers. Oftentimes they were responsible for washing their own, but if they were someone else to wash the feet, it would have been somebody of a lower status. It would have been a servant. And so when Jesus takes the towel, wraps it around his waist, takes the basin of water and begins to wash their feet, all done what? Knowing that everything is under his feet, that everything is under his authority. He does all that and still he does this. And so it's a picture of humility, it's a picture of service, but I think it's something more. I think there's something more that Jesus is saying, that it's a picture of his impending death. That here's this hour has come, he's talking about the hour has come that he's re returning to God. And the language even of putting down and taking up, it talks about he puts down his clothes and then he later he takes them up, which is language from earlier when Jesus talks about the good shepherd who lays down his life and he takes it up again. And so here's this picture of Jesus laying it down. And we're going to see in a little bit more how this is just not just a picture of humility. Because there's one lesson we could take from it. We could simply say Jesus is demonstrating to us, 
to not think too highly of ourselves. Jesus is demonstrating a principle of serving others, of, of putting others before ourselves. And that may be a lesson we need to draw, and it's an important lesson to draw, and it is one of the lessons we can draw. But I think Jesus is pointing to something more in this context, that he's talking about laying down his life and taking it up again and how that works. And one of the things notice is he washes the feet of all the disciples there. And who is there among those 12 disciples whose feet he washes? Judas. Whom we have just been told a few verses earlier. What, what is Judas about to do? Betray him. And Jesus knows all this thing because later in the story, we hear Jesus tell Judas, go and do what you need to do. So Jesus doesn't skip Judas. He doesn't say, well, I'm going to wash everybody's feet, but not you, Judas. Yeah, you know, you're going to betray me, so you don't deserve my love. You don't deserve my service. So Jesus demonstrates, even in this moment, this love, not only for friends, but love for enemies. And then he comes to Peter. Peter, 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 Peter. Peter is one of those characters that, if you're familiar with the stories in the Bible, he always seems to have his heart in the right place. He always seems to be eager to get things right, but his mouth gets ahead of him a little too often. Maybe some of you know what that's like. Maybe it's you, maybe it's somebody else, but you know that person who is enthusiastic and they want to do the right thing and, and their, their heart is in the right place, but the words come out and it's just not quite right. So Peter says, well, no, but Jesus, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. And it's the sense of you are not going to wash my feet. And that's one of those tricky things, isn't it? If you've ever read a sentence, that even the way we put an emphasis in a sentence can make a big difference, isn't it? Where do we put it? Lord, are you going to wash my feet? 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 But the emphasis here is really on the you and my. It's the sense of, wait a minute, you, Lord, are going to do this? Because when Jesus responds, he talks about you and I, and so there's a sense of who is doing the washing. And Peter objects, and it's, it's a little bit unclear why why he, he objects, but Jesus replies and says, you don't realize what I'm doing, but later you will understand. And you start reading that and you think, well, what's there to understand? He's washing my feet. But the implication is there's something more that's going on, and you'll understand it later. And this is something that happens often in the Gospel of John where something, Jesus says something, the disciples experience something, and John tells us that later on, the disciples understood it. Back at the very beginning, Jesus talks about tearing down the temple and says the disciples figured out later, like, oh, he was talking about his own body. In several other places, that same sort of thing, understanding later. And even later on in this same passage, down in chapter 14, verse 26, it says, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. In other words, that later after the resurrection, they're going to understand certain things. And that's why I think that there's more to this foot washing than just humility and service. When Jesus says, later you will understand, he's not talking about 
in 10 or 15 minutes. He's talking about after he's been crucified and after he's been resurrected, they're going to look back on this and they're going to see something more going on. But Peter's pretty insistent. I mean, even after Jesus says, you don't realize what I'm doing. And so you would think Peter, who's been following Jesus now for three years, Peter who questioned when Jesus said, well, I'm going to die. And Peter says, no, you're not. And Jesus says, God, get behind me, Satan. You would think maybe after that time, Peter would, after Jesus corrects him, learn his lesson. But Peter is like so many of us. We never really learn. We hear something and we kind of go on. And so Peter says, well, you're not going to wash my feet, are you? And Jesus says, well, you don't understand. And, Jesus, and Peter goes on. He says, no, you'll never wash my feet. And you got to see Jesus' patience here going, oh, Peter. But how many of us does this describe? I mean, we're not told why Peter refuses, but how many of us are like this where we want to do things on our own? Where God says something, where Jesus says something to us, says, I'm going to watch it. No, no, no. I got this, Jesus. I'm okay. You know, Jesus says, Here's the way I want you to live. No, no, I'm doing okay right now. I got this. You know, sometimes we go back to Jesus when things are struggling, when we're struggling, when things are hard. But there's this sense of, no, you're not going to do that. I mean, I'm doing pretty well on my own right now, Jesus. I've got things under control. And so Peter's like, no, 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 you're not going to wash it. And so we see something else is going on, especially as it continues on. And where Jesus says, this, after Peter says, no, you'll never wash my feet. Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. That's kind of a strange phrase, isn't it? You mean no part in me? No part, no part in what? And the word part is really the sense of you'll have no inheritance. That word part kind of implies it would have been the language the people of Israel would have used to speak of the land that they were inheriting this inheritance. And so when Jesus is saying, when you refuse to let me wash you, you will have no inheritance. You will not be in me. You will not receive all that I receive. And so then we begin to think, wait a minute, maybe it's about something more than just washing dirty feet. That it's about something else. That it's about Jesus' death and acceptance by his believers. Acceptance of Jesus by the believers. So when Jesus says, unless you let me wash you, you will have no part in me. In other words, unless you receive me, unless you accept my death as cleansing for your sins, you'll have no part in me. But Peter still hasn't figured it out. He's like, well, well, Jesus, if, if, if I'm not going to be with you, if I'm not going to have your inheritance, if you don't wash my feet, then go ahead, give me a bath. That's what he says, then Lord, verse 9, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Wash me all, give, do it all. Jesus is like, oh. he says, if you've had a bath, those who've had a bath need to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. And so he's saying, he's talking about more than dirt off the feet. But what we see in some sense, and there's, that's a strange kind of verse that goes on. Those who've had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. And so again, here, 
He says, though not every one of you. Well, he's washed all their feet, but he's saying, no, not every one of you is clean. And it says, for he knew who was going to betray him. And so we realize that when he's talking about washing here, he's not simply talking about the dirt and the dung from the streets that's getting washed off their feet. He's talking about something deeper. And he's saying, this is the kind of washing. And so he's saying this foot washing is symbolizing the spiritual cleansing that will take place on the cross. He's saying, Peter, you don't need more. I'm going to do it all right there. And so we're setting this up where Jesus is doing this act where he's washing people's feet, but he's symbolizing, he's in some sense living out a parable. He's saying, this is what's about to happen. My death, my love for you is the washing of you to make you clean and to make you a part of my family, to welcome you into the household. Because again, when did people get their feet washed? When they came into the house. And so Jesus is in some sense, now I'm bringing you into my house and I'm washing the feet. And then he goes on and he tells his followers that they're to wash others' feet too. When he goes down to verse 15, I've set an example that you should do as I have done for you. And now many churches practice this. I've been part of churches. We've occasionally done it on the Thursday before Easter, which is um, known as Maundy Thursday, which is Monday Mandate the command Thursday. And so some churches will celebrate this or some will do it more frequently where they have a foot washing ceremony. And it's a powerful thing to do that. But I think Jesus is getting at something more than just occasionally we should wash each other's feet in church. Because he's talking about how no servant is greater than his master nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him in verse 16. He's telling them to live this out. Part, it's living out humble service. Part of it is saying, we as the church are to be humble servants. We're to be like Jesus. We're not to consider ourselves of a greater station than others. But we're to serve others quietly and love for them. We're to serve friends and enemies. But it's more than that. It's a proclamation of the story of John. Because what's the story of the Gospel of John? begins at the beginning where Jesus came and became like us so we could become like him. It says he takes on flesh, but he does it so that we, he, the son of God, becomes like one of us so we can become what? Children of God. And so he becomes like us so we can become like him. He comes to give us life. Well, the passage we looked at just a few weeks ago where Jesus comes that we might have life and we might have life to the full. And he does it in realizing that we're in desperate need of this life and he provides it. How does Jesus give the life? Through the cross. Through his death, the one that cleanses us. And so Jesus is showing this here. He's saying, remember, this is all framed by the love, the hour of come. If we just had a story of Jesus washing the feet and nothing else, but John has set us up. How did he set us up? He said, the hour has come. He's put all things under his feet. He's setting it up and he's saying, this foot washing is not just a random event that happened, but Jesus sets it and John sets it in the context of what's about to happen. And so we see Jesus, just as a host welcomes people and provides water to wash their feet, Jesus welcomes us into the household of God by washing us of our sins. And then this cleansing love, so this love that cleanses, this 
death of Jesus, it founds our community, creates the community. So in other words, we have this document that we use here at Fruitland Covenant Church called a covenant for life together. And it begins by saying, as a body of believers brought together by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, the reason the church exists, the reason we exist, the reason we gather together, the reason that we can look at one another, we, we gather from different places and different social statuses, the reason that we come together and can refer to each other as brother and sister is because of what Jesus has done. And think about that language. It's not as common here at Fruitland, but in many traditions, people refer to each other as brother or as sister. Maybe you heard the expression, the brother from another mother, right? So there's this language of being a part of a family, which again goes back to John chapter 1 where it says that Jesus did this so that we might become children of God. So he welcomes us into the family. But we're also not just brought together, but we're brought together for a purpose, and the purpose is so that the world will know this love. And so when Jesus says in verse 16, Truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Well, he's just been showing what a servant does. Why is he talking about a messenger? Because he's about to tell the disciples that he's sending them out. But see what happens? Their love for each other and the world comes only after the cleansing. So he brings them together. He says, you're cleansed, and then he sends them out. In other words... We cannot love the world, we cannot show love to the world until we've experienced that love ourselves, until we've experienced the love of God. And we're founded to show that love. And he goes on, and we didn't read the whole passage, but near the end of this kind of like little section of his thing, John chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. All right. So how do people know you're Jesus followers? Love for one another, right? Is it by the size of the Bible you carry? How many verses you can quote? How much money you give to the church? How often you work at the food pantry? Your attendance record in Sunday school? How big the fish sticker is on the back of your car? How do people know we are followers of Jesus by our love for one another? Because we've experienced the love of God and we demonstrate that. We're called to love and reflect and participate in this love and mission. Jesus is demonstrating his love and foot washing is a symbol of our life together in the world. It's a symbol of our life together in the world. It's the shape of the mission is to be like Jesus in his self-giving, life-giving, friend and enemy loving death. So as we think about this passage, I want us to see two things as we wrap our up, conclude. One is, it's a picture of what Jesus does and who he is. That Jesus is the one who loves his friends and his enemies and he gives of his life so that we can be cleansed. It's a picture not simply of Jesus' humility, of him taking all the authority and putting it on, but that what he gives is he gives life. He comes and he washes their feet as a symbol of the way he'll wash our hearts through the, his death on the cross. That his death gives life, and that's the paradox, that his life-giving death 
and that he gives of himself and that he loves his friends and his enemies. He does it for Peter and he does it for Judas. He does it for all of us. He loves deeply and loves all. But then it's also that same call to us when Jesus says, I want you to do the same. I think Jesus is saying more than just once a year, I want you to wash each other's feet at church. I think what Jesus is saying is, I'm calling you to live out that same sort of thing. To be willing to not think of yourself too highly, but to give your life if need be, and to love your friend and love your enemy. Love our enemies. Oh, well, that's a hard one. But Jesus is saying, be willing to do that. Because what we have a tendency to do is we want to drag our enemies down. We want to point out all the things that are wrong with them. We want to mock them. We want to humiliate them. We want to demonstrate how they're wrong about everything. Maybe they've wounded us in some way, and so we want to lash out and hurt back. Maybe we want to ostracize them and just simply ignore them and make them feel the same pain that we've felt. But Jesus says, no, this community of love that has been founded by the foot washing, this community of love that has been made into the household of God by the death and resurrection of Jesus, this community of love is to demonstrate that same love that's willing to wash the feet of our enemy. Whoever that might be. And realize that it's not something we can do on our own. Because Jesus calls us to do it only after what? Only after he has shown his love to us. So it's not simply like, okay, Fruitland Covenant, I want you to suck it up, get out there, chew your best and go love your enemy. Because how well will that work out for us? Might last for a little while. Might last for a short while until we encounter that person who's wronged us until we see that post on Facebook, until we see that thing or we're watching the news and we see the people on the other side, we're just, oh! And all of a sudden the love goes away real quickly. And we look and say, keep your dirty feet. But when we realize the depths of love that Jesus had for us, that God had given him all authority, that all things had been put under his feet, that he had come from God and that he was returning to God, that he had all these things, and yet he stooped low, not only to wash the feet of his disciples, but then to die for them. And I think when they look back on it, they saw that this was what this is about. I think that's what John is inviting us to do, to look back at this foot washing and see it as a parable, a picture of what Jesus does when he dies on the cross. And he says, this is what love looks like. And when we realize that love and it pours into us and when we feel ourselves washed by that love, then we can go and love as he loved us. So we have to be careful about turning it into this moral imperative. We oftentimes want to take Bible stories and we just want to get quickly to like, what do I do with this? Tell me what I'm supposed to do. And what John wants to remind us of is we always begin, first of all, with what God has done before we get any sense of what we do. 
And it has to begin with what God has done, has given us life. He has demonstrated friend and enemy love in Jesus Christ. He has washed us and made us clean. He has brought us into his household and incorporated us into this community of love. And out of that then, in what we're going to get to in the next couple weeks as we look through this mission discourse, this words that Jesus gives, is out of that we live it out. And even in next week when we get into that language of the sermon series, abide and go. Where Jesus says, only when you remain in me. This is a little spoiler alert for next week. This is this picture of remaining in Jesus that only when we're attached to him, only when we're buried in his love, only when we're immersed in his love, only when we've been washed by him can we wash the feet of others and love them. So may we experience God's self-giving enemy and friend loving love today. And as we experience and as we're washed, may we go into the world and love our friends and enemies. And see, that's the thing. We love not just our friends in the church, but our enemies outside. May we know his love and show his love in Jesus' name.